We're reading out of Nehemiah 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks. All right. So uh, if you've been around for the last, oh, geez, last couple of weeks, we've been in a series called Questions God Asked. We're pivoting today and starting a series in Nehemiah in that book called Come Let Us Rebuild. And um, we preached through this book about six years ago here in this congregation. Uh, You might have been here for that, maybe, maybe not. Um, But as I was praying about the fall and uh, kind of where we're at in the state of our congregation, as well as even the state of the world, uh, felt like uh, being in such a rebuilding, even relaunching season, uh, I say coming out of COVID, as we all are sitting with masks again, it, it feels a lot like starts and stops right now, uh, that revisiting this moment, Nehemiah's story, uh, and the story of what God was doing in Israel uh, felt very appropriate and very wise for us. So we're going to be camping out in this book uh, through the fall, uh, all the way up until about Thanksgiving time. So it's one of my favorite books uh, in the Bible because there is a ton of really practical wisdom uh, in here. You could argue that it's a case study uh, for how God continues to move forward his plan of, a, of redemption through his people, even in really, really dark and difficult circumstances. But the biggest reason it's one of my favorite books in the Bible is, is because uh, what you'll see here is, is that God is working through, and I say that, God, it's not, we're not holding up Nehemiah, we're holding up what God's doing in the life of Nehemiah. God is working through this Israelite, Nehemiah, who he isn't a prophet, he isn't a priest, he isn't a king, which if you know anything about those three offices, those were kind of the big three leadership offices that people in the Old Testament had and who God normally worked through. But this is actually what the New Testament talks about when we talk about the priesthood of all believers. That's what's happening in Nehemiah's life. He's just a normal dude who works in a pretty good government job, right? He's a cupbearer, we'll find this out later, to a foreign pagan king, not a a God-fearing king necessarily. Uh, He's a benevolent king at this time. But he's, he's used to have a massive impact on the state of the spiritual, communal, social life of God's people, this normal dude, Nehemiah. And God moves his heart, we'll see this as we study the book, to have a vision for God's people. And Nehemiah's vision, he was a man whose vision grew bigger than just his vision for his life. His vision was bigger than just his vision for his life or his immediate family. He was actually captured by a God-sized vision for God's people and to work for their good in some incredibly practical ways. He rebuilds the city of Jerusalem, okay? So let me give you a little bit of context before we dive into these four verses um, to help us understand kind of why is this so significant. 
Uh, at this point in the Bible, towards the end of the Bible, the end of the Old Testament, I don't know how much you've read of the Old Testament, but there's a lot of converging timelines that are happening towards the end of the Bible, right? I don't know. I was trying to think of the, the you guys see the movie Babel? You guys remember that movie? I think, I think I'm remembering this movie. I didn't have time to go watch it this weekend, but it's like five or six different storylines going on. And whether I can't remember whether the actual storylines converge or just the themes of the storylines converge, but it's kind of like that. There's a lot of different things and storylines going on that are actually all converging towards the end of the Bible. Like Ezra and Nehemiah, those two books in the Bible, are actually were largely considered one book for a long, long time, right? There's a ton of overlap in those two books about this moment in biblical history. The prophecies of Jeremiah and Isaiah are also happening at this time, right? Parts of 2 Kings and Chronicles, Esther happens at this time. Malachi happens right after. So there's a lot of things happening, and those books are all looking at this thing that's happening from different vantage points, but they're all talking about what's going on here in the book of Nehemiah. It's the time right after the Babylonian exile, if you don't know anything about that, there was a time in Israel's history uh, where they were taken off into exile. It's a time after the Babylonian exile. The the Persians, even at this time in Nehemiah, have conquered the Babylonians. So it's kind of a long exile, Babylonians first and then Persians. The Babylonian exile was when King Nebuchadnezzar took Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of Israel, God's people, by force in, in 586 And he utterly decimated it. Like it was left in complete ruins. The temple that Solomon had built, right? The great temple was completely leveled. The walls and the gates of the city, all of the infrastructure, they were all in flames and in ruins. And the people, not all the people, but most of the, (laughs) this is really sad to say this, the quality people of Israel, the greatest minds, the most like ingenious folks, they were actually taken off and employed in Babylon, right? And what this meant for the Jewish people was this, that they had lost their land, they had lost their independence and freedom, they had lost their city, they had lost their king, they lost most of their actual religious practices, apart from just basically reading the scripture, their temple, their rhythms, right? Life was completely turned on its head. I think we've gotten... I don't want to push us into this category because we certainly aren't experiencing the exile that they experienced in the Babylonian exile, but we've gotten a taste of some of this uh, in our context here over the last two years. Life was turned on its head, right? And they had lost all these key things to them, things that were key to their identity as a people, key to them experiencing the promises that God had made to them in his covenants, and the hope that the prophets talked about concerning Israel's redemption in their future. The point is this, in the Babylonian captivity and then under the Persians, the candle of collective hope, collective hope, and God's promises, God keeping his promises to his people, the candle of that was almost completely snuffed out in the hearts of the Israelites, right? It wasn't snuffed out because Nehemiah is a good example, right? God was still at work 
for his people in the heart of this guy. God was even still at work in the heart of some of these Persian kings like Cyrus and Darius and this guy Artaxerxes that you'll meet to actually begin to send the people back to Jerusalem in order to rebuild their temple and rebuild their city and rebuild their wall. So God was at work, but in the heart of the Israelites at this point after 141 years, roughly, of being in captivity, we got... We're in year two, right, of tough. Think about that for a second. 141 years. There have been different waves of people over those different kings over like a 70-year period that were kind of starting to come back to Jerusalem under Ezra. And they kind of had all these false starts. We started to rebuild, and then it got destroyed again. Then we started to rebuild, and it got destroyed again, right? God was still keeping his promises, being faithful to his people, to his covenants, even when his people were not being faithful to him. That's where we find Nehemiah. And God works through this guy in some extraordinary ways for Israel. So this story, <laughs> and I, I, I'm encouraging you, if, it's, if, it's, if you're not connecting with what I'm saying, I'm encouraging you that... that the beauty of part of the story is, is that um, we're all leaders and we're all people who are being called into stepping into the narrative and into the time that God has put us in. And Nehemiah's story is one uh, that can give us a lot of hope because it's a story of him grasping God's vision for his life. It's a story of working out that vision in your heart and your mind. It's a story of calling other people into that vision facing opposition and persevering in seeing that vision to realization. Nehemiah's story is a story that basically is, is this is what it looks like when God's people come to de- together to do what they could never do apart from one another. And when his supernatural grace is at work in their hearts. So there we go. A little bit of context. Sorry, that took a little bit longer than I wanted it to. Hopefully that'll frame a little bit of what we're going to talk about even this morning. Where does this movement begin in the heart of Nehemiah? Where does the work begin? And the thing you need to hear about Nehemiah and this morning and hear about Nehemiah for you this morning is this. It begins in Nehemiah himself. God works in him before he ever starts to work through him, right? God, this is a principle that's in Scripture. It's one that we often forget. God works from the inside out, okay? God works in you long before he's going to work through you. He wants to get in there and mess around in your heart and get things stirred up in there before he sends you out. But oftentimes, how he gets that work going is is he breaks into your heart by something from the outside, right? He brings something in from the outside to disrupt and reorient your desires and your commitments and, and actually begins to set you on a trajectory where your life is about something bigger than your life, because that's what Nehemiah's life was about. So what's the movement that we see just in these four verses? Two, two points this morning. See, I'm shaving them down. From, from clueless to curious, that's the first move we see. And then secondly, from curious to convicted. So from clueless, clueless is a strong word, but yeah, you just work them, you're trying to find things that rhyme, right? C words. 
from clueless to curious, he becomes curious, and then from a place of curiosity to a place of conviction. That's how we see God at work in Nehemiah just in these four verses. From clueless to curious, first, first thing, right out of the gate, we see Nehemiah being moved from this place of being relatively unaware of what's going on back in Jerusalem, right? Because he's in the citadel of Susa, right? Relatively unaware to a very aware place. He has open eyes and open ears. You see him asking questions and actually taking an interest in the lives of those who it says here, they survived the exile, they were in great trouble and great disgrace, right? I'm going to have open eyes, open ears, I'm going to ask questions, I'm going to take an interest in these people who have survived the exile, who are in great trouble and great disgrace. Now, why? That may just seem like, oh, well, great, of course. Like, he asked some questions and he heard what was going on. That may not seem significant, but I'm going to argue that it actually was. And why it was, was this. Because as cupbearer to the king, and living in the citadel of Susa, which was the summer palace, right, of the Persian king, this was his rosemary house, right, on 30A, you know, where he went for the summer. Let's just stop and think about that for a second. Yeah, he's on 30A under his umbrellas, right? What I'm, what I'm getting at is, is he had a really good setup, and he also he would have been one of the exiles that was born in exile. Like, he didn't get hauled off with everybody during the Babylonian captivity. He would have been born in Persia, right? So he had never seen Jerusalem. He didn't have his own personal memories of, remember the time when we were all in Jerusalem together? That was so great, right? He had never been there. He had only heard of Jerusalem, Let me just say it like this. The exile had been tough on all Israelites, but it had been far rougher on some than others. And it had been far rougher on others than him. In fact, this is actually out of some historical documents. Under Persian rule, many of the Israelites had gotten so comfortable and so prosperous in Babylon and then in Persia that they decided that going back to Jerusalem really wasn't all that important. Hey, we're kind of good here. And man, that would be a whole lot of sacrifice for us to go back to Jerusalem. And a lot of those Israelites, they were literally, this is in historical documents that say that they were building successful businesses in that foreign land. Many world historians actually believe this was the time that the first banks came into existence was under the Persian Empire, right? And what I'm getting at is it's kind of like this. Hey, you know, this isn't ideal, but it's not actually not so bad here. My vision for my life is is working. We're we're kind of stable. Maybe even I got rich here, right? I got the things that I need, and maybe I've grown comfortable to the point to where I actually don't have a whole lot of concern for my fellow man. And so this whole idea of life is the people of God under his leadership and under his vision for our lives, um, caring about the common good, caring about my brothers and sisters who are in exile, right? People who are outside my circle, uh, no thanks. That was where many Israelites had gotten to 
under the exile, right? Let me say it like this. Exile made individuals out of what was meant to be a people. Just think about that for a second. What exile did was exile made people become individuals when God intended them not to be individuals, but to be people, his people, right? It took a we and it made it into a me. And the point that I'm trying to make is that Nehemiah, he would have absolutely been ripe to be that sort of indifferent. He was in one of those situations where things weren't that rough for him, right? And so if he was going to be implicated in the needs of these exiles, Hanani, his brother, and some of these other men from Judah who were reporting about the disgrace and the situation, if he was going to be implicated in these needs, then he was going to have to be open to change in his situation, change of his relationships, change of his literal address. I'm moving from Susa to Jerusalem, right? I'm going back to Cali. I don't even know what that song's about. That's just in my head right now. I'm leaving security, which Nehemiah would have had security, right? He wasn't wondering where his next meal was going to come from. Leaving security for uncertainty, leaving safety for risk, leaving the familiar for the unknown. All of that began by him being willing to have open eyes and open ears and asking questions and taking interest in his brothers and their situation. And it was the beginning of his heart being moved from a place of being clueless, I'm unaware of what's going on, to actually being curious about what's going on. So for us, just some application here. <laughs> and I wrote these out. I don't, if you think I'm speaking to you, I'm speaking to you after God has spoken to me about this, about me. For us, are we willing, are you willing, am I willing to be moved from that place of unaware kind of clueless to a place of curiosity, right? Let me just tell you, here's some of the ways I know when I'm not, okay? If I don't want to be moved by the Lord into what he's calling me into, then here are a few things I know I do. I keep all my conversations on the surface, right? I don't ever give opportunity for that conversation to go beneath the surface. And in fact, I do all the talking because if I do all the talking, then I can control the conversation and I may not have to find out something about what's going on in your life that actually may make me stop and go, whoa. So if you don't want to be moved by the Lord into what he may be calling you to, a bigger vision for your life than your vision for your life, keep the conversation on the surface. Don't ever go deep with anybody and do all the talking and control the conversation, all right? Secondly, and this was the other one that really convicted me, stay busy. Stay super busy with your life, right? Because you won't have time to actually slow down and see others in need. Stay busy. I won't have time to actually reflect about what I just saw or what I just heard because I'm on to the next thing. But the Lord He's not just content to leave Nehemiah in a place of curiosity, because he does move. We see that move in the beginning. He moves from a place of curious, or sorry, from clueless to curious, but then he moves him again from a place of curiosity to conviction, okay? Because God was leading him 
to a deeper place. And I, w- I would say it was this. It was actually leading him from, from, from a place of just listening to what's going on to truly hearing. You know the difference? You ever been with somebody when you can tell they're listening to you? They're like, they're listening to you, but they're not hearing you. They're not really engaged with what's going on, right? Like I, one of my roommates that I lived with before I was married is a guy named Royce Risser, and he, he knew this about me, that I had a tendency to kind of be listening but not actually paying attention. So some nights we, we would be sitting there like eating dinner and then on the couch and TV would be on and he would notice that I was watching the TV. And so he would start telling me things about parts of, my, or of his day to see if I was paying attention to him. And eventually... During the conversation, he would throw in something that was completely untrue just to see if I was paying attention. Like he would say, so I was hanging out with one of my coworkers and I decided that I thought it would be funny to shove them down a flight of stairs. And he would say that to me and he, I would literally be like, watch TV, like, yeah, yeah. And then he would stop and go, dude, are you listening to what I was saying? I just told you I shoved a coworker down a flight of stairs. And I'm like, Oh, no, not apologize. And then, of course, I would do it again, right? Because I was prone to listening to what he was saying, but not hearing what he was saying. Well, Nehemiah was being moved from a place of curiosity to this new place of conviction. He wasn't becoming vaguely aware of the issue or just in the knowledge of it. He allowed what he saw and what he heard to begin to move his heart to a place of activity, of active reflection, which here scripture says was marked by mourning, fasting, and praying before the God of heaven. He moved into a position of mourning, fasting, and prayer, which is a picture of what? It's a picture of what I said earlier, a movement from the inside out. I am going to allow the Lord to move in me before I ever move on, right? Before I ever go do whatever God may be calling me to do, right? So he mourns. We could preach whole sermons on this, but mourning is what? It's lamenting, letting your heart be broken over a situation. He wasn't being sympathetic to these guys. He was being empathetic. I don't know if you ever remember that old Brene Brown video where they had the bear and the fox right? And she tells the difference between sympathy and empathy. And the picture was, is that the, you know, sympathy was kind of like talking to the bear or the bear talking to the fox and he's down in the hole and he's like, how's things going down there? Versus being the one who goes down the ladder and actually gets in the hole with the fox, right? It's allowing yourself to actually be in their situation with them, get down on their level, feel what they're feeling. That's what empathy is. That's what Nehemiah is doing here. He wept, right? He ugly face cried, right? That kind of where you just can't get your nose clean enough, right? And why is he doing that? Is it just because he's a good guy? No, it's because that's the fruit of what it looks like when the Spirit is working in the heart of an individual. That's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the first one, love, right? Love weeps. Love allows itself to have its heart torn over situations, right? That's what Jesus did at Lazarus's tomb, with Mary and Martha, he wept over what was going on because he knew this isn't what's right. This isn't what I intended, right? Death is not what, was, what I created the world to experience. He wept when he went into Jerusalem because they, had no, they were a shepherd without sheep, right? He wept. 
So Nehemiah mourns and then he fasts, right? What is he doing there? Well, just really simply, he's not acting quickly. (laughs) He's returning and enacting a practice that was instituted by God and his law through his word and his commandments, fasting. And he's saying, I'm going to allow that to shape and form my response to what I'm seeing. I'm going to actually not just deny myself something, which is what fasting is, but I'm going to allow that process to, to lead me to a place of self-discovery. Convict me about maybe my apathy or my indifference or what you're calling me to do. That's what fasting does. That's why Psalm 139 talks about it. Search me, right? Search me, know my heart, test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Fasting was the practice that took him into that sort of prayer, right? He mourned, he fasted, and he prayed. We'll talk about prayer more next week because we have one of his prayers in this passage. But all of those things, he said, I did that for some days. And I just encourage you to to sit with that. He fasted, he prayed, he mourned for some days. This was not a knee-jerk reaction. He actually allowed himself to marinate in that grief and in that sadness, to slow way down, right? To assume I, I don't, just in this moment of seeing and hearing, I don't have all that I need or know all that I need or have experienced all that I need to actually act on what God's calling me to do. Lord, how do you want me to respond? I would never know that like this. I need to mourn. I need to fast. I need to pray, right? I need to allow myself to sit in it, not rush out of it, which is hard. That's hard for me. Let me tell you practically, one of the challenges here One of the challenges for us, and I think this is true of of our generation, maybe the last really 30 years. I don't know about you, but, um, well, I think I do know about you. That's why I'm saying this. (laughs) Information overload and exposure to so much uh, brokenness, um, trauma, unrest, whether it's on our local level or on our global level, is real. And I don't know about you, but oftentimes it can leave me feeling very paralyzed about what in the world do I do with everything that I'm experiencing and taking in, right? I I see so many needs. I feel so powerless to affect change about any of that stuff, right? Afghanistan this week, if you spent any time on news or social media feeds, overwhelming, right? What's going on? Found myself even, like, it's hard to even know how to pray right now other than for, like, God have mercy and thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? Tears. It feels so far away. I feel numb. I feel all sorts of things. That's a real challenge for us, and... I was reminded in a conversation with Randy, Pastor Randy White, of a, of a book a guy named Neil Postman wrote called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he talked about some of this. It's about a lot of other things. But he talked about this overexposure 
that we experience every single day on a global scale and the impotence that that can lead to. I feel impotent, powerless. How so much of that can eventually lead to impotence on a local scale. That I began to be, be feel like I, I can't and I don't know how to step into this situation over here. And I, I get so paralyzed in that that I actually began to feel like I can't step into the situation in this room. I can't step into my neighbor's life who just went through a traumatic situation. I can't step into the single mom down the street or my kid's schoolmate. I actually began to feel powerless in every area of my life, right? And so an encouragement, I just encourage us. This is, it's, it's ancient, but it's so practical that, that we actually... I, if Nehemiah were in a social media age, I would just tell you this. Nehemiah would not be posting. He would be posturing. I know that's, that's kind of direct. But <clears throat> he, would be, he would be spending more time doing what he's doing here and inviting us in Scripture because he's just practicing what God commanded the Israelites to practice, to mourn and to fast and to go before him, right? And so... It's a real practical challenge for us, but I I put it out there for you. I don't know if you feel that pressure. Sometimes I feel that pressure of posting something at least shows that I'm aware of what's going on, right? And that I care about it. But oftentimes that relieves my conscience and keeps me from actually spending time with the Lord about how are you calling me to actually respond to this? Or what are you calling me to actually respond to? And would you lead me in this? That's just a super practical encouragement from somebody who struggles with the very same things that I'm assuming you struggle with. If not, and you know a way around that, please come tell me. I'd love to learn from you, okay? But Nehemiah, he he went from a place of clueless to curious, and then from curious to conviction. And I would just tell you this, how was, and this is the last thing I'll say, he mourned and he fasted and he prayed it's subtle, before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's immediate reaction to what he saw was, I need to go be in the presence of the Lord, right? I need to go be in the presence of the Lord. Because you and I, when we see and experience the things we see and experience, I just tell you, we all go before something or someone with that with what I'm seeing and feeling. And what Nehemiah did was is he said, I'm going to go before the Lord, right? I'm not going to act quickly. I'm not going to assume I need or I know what I need to do right now. I need to go before the throne, before the king, and allow the king to give me direction, and allow the king to comfort my heart, allow the king to lead me in the way everlasting, right? So just a practical thing as you and I, we step into what I would say is a rebuilding season in our community, but there's rebuilding going on everywhere and difficulty going on everywhere. What are the things that you go before and come before instead of going before the Lord with what you're seeing? Because there's no, there's no way, I'll just argue this, there's no way to get conviction, to get true conviction without going before the Lord. I can be very busy doing a lot of really good things 
and be exhausted and worn out. And Nehemiah, he needed some serious conviction to do what he was about to do. Because he says in chapter 2, God put this in my heart to do it. So what is God putting on your heart to do? Right? How would you know? How would you know if your vision for your life is only a vision for your life? Or, or do you have a vision for your life? Has God given you a vision bigger than your vision for your life? Well, it begins by what I think the Lord leads Nehemiah through, which is moving us from a place of being unaware to aware to being really curious about that and that curiosity through coming before the Lord, turning into real conviction. So that's my prayer for us this morning. It's my prayer for us as we launch into this study of Nehemiah, uh, that the Lord would really use this uh, to awaken the inner Nehemiah in us, okay? Let me pray. Lord, um, I'm just going to pause. Thank you for our brother Nehemiah. Uh, Lord, thank you for how, um, how we see you move in his life. Uh, I pray that this wouldn't just be uh, an interesting story about a historical guy, but that we, we would begin to see ourselves uh, in these characters and that we would begin to believe um, that you want to move in our lives the way you moved in his life uh, for the good of other people. And Lord, uh, just acknowledge we ultimately, uh, we see you in Nehemiah. Uh, who was moved on our behalf, uh, who heard our cries, uh, who saw our trouble, who saw our disgrace and wasn't content to stay in the citadel of Susa. <laughs> uh, but you came for us. And so, Lord, uh, strengthen our hearts. They need to be strengthened. Uh, I pray that we would learn to be people who mourn uh, before you, uh, who fast, uh, who, who willingly set things down in order to allow you to shape and, uh, shape and direct our hearts. Um, and Lord, we pray uh, for our community. I pray for our church uh, as we're, we are. We're in a season of rebuilding. And it, what, what needs to be built can't be built by one of us. Uh, it can only be built by all of us. So we love you. Uh, thank you for your word and your name. Amen.